Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. Brand new this month in the Christian Heritage series at Canon Press is Jeremiah Burroughs' The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, with a fantastic introduction from Nancy Wilson. Burroughs, being a wise pastor, works the teaching of contentment into every possible nook and cranny in the Christian life. If you want to read something to make you feel you have arrived, this is not the book for you. Burroughs understands that contentment is a mystery and cannot be taught lightly. It requires diligent application if we are to say with Paul that we have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. From Nancy Wilson's Introduction Get Jeremiah Burroughs' The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment at canonpress.com So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 143. 143. Can you believe it? Thank you for joining me. Uh, good to have you with us. Grateful to be riding along in your car or wherever it is we are. So I want to talk a little bit about um, endless conservatism. And this is another way of saying uh, I'm speaking of a conservatism that doesn't really have any intention of conserving anything. Um, and I want to raise a, a, what ought to be a very simple question. So I've, uh, I began reading um, National Review when I was in high school. I picked up a, a book uh, by William F. Buckley, Up From Liberalism, um, in a, some bookshop somewhere, read it, and I was immediately conquered. Uh, William F. Buckley, I loved his um, way of writing. I loved his way of engaging. I loved just so... He made an immediate conquest of me, and so in high school, I um, began to, uh, I, I subscribed to National Review and have been, I would describe myself as a movement conservative since the late 60s, early 70s. That's when I was in high school. I graduated from high school in 71 and subscribed. To, in fact, I still subscribe to National Review, still get it. So I'm, I've been a movement conservative uh, that whole time. and. I've read books and books and books and books and books and stuff. Um, and uh, I've read books from the fever swamps. I've read books from the uh, Reconstructionists. I've read uh, books from the moderate, uh, conservative, squishy left. You know, I've, I've read all kinds of books. And I've read enough, particularly the hard money conservatives um, or the, the hard-bitten, hard-bitten, hard money conservatives. I think it's safe to say that the conservatives who see things the most clearly um, are the ones who don't see some things at all. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the um, conservatives have been catching the last train out for my entire adult life. So this is this is it, friends. You know, fire in the mountain, run, boys, run. This is this is totally it. So we're going to have a disaster. They, they can't keep printing money. They can't, they can't do this. They can't do this. And then somehow they keep doing it. Now, it's like, it's like we were thrown off a skyscraper. 
and conservatives have been saying, we're going to hit the sidewalk. And they think that we're at the third floor uh, when we're actually at the 38th floor. Uh, I don't doubt, I don't doubt their assertion. I don't doubt that we're going to hit the sidewalk. Uh, What I'm starting to doubt is whether they have any good grasp of the timing. Um, Shouldn't we, if if things have been going to hell in a handbasket for decade after decade, shouldn't we be there by now? Shouldn't we have arrived by now? Now, either the conservative principles, uh, fiscal sanity and all of that, either those principles are wrong and the Keynesians are right or the socialists are right, or the conservatives are right, but they have a tendency to have within history, I'm using, I'll use scare quotes here, they have a tendency within history to function in terms of an over-realized eschatology. They think the end is closer than it actually is. They think the end is upon us. Um, Basically, um, at some point, conservatives have to be able to say, it's too late, it's all over, it's done, we hit the sidewalk. The old American experiment is done. Constitutional governance is done. Fiscal sanity is done. It's over. So if we believe that liberalism is parasitic and socialism is parasitic, and it's devouring the host. At some point, the host of the parasite has to die. If the tapeworm keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, at some point, the tapeworm's going to have to go somewhere else because we're not going to be here anymore. So I think that conservatives either need to stop using rhetoric like that or they need to act as though they have to give an account of why it didn't happen the way they predicted. Uh, Larry Burkett, for example, wrote a a famous book back in the 80s, The Coming Economic Earthquake. Uh, That that kind of disaster is upon us, disaster is upon us. Either, Either should make you question the whole enterprise. Maybe these conservatives are not as shrewd as they think. Or... Maybe conservatives are seeing things accurately, but are looking through the wrong end of the telescope. So, podcast, episode 143, Hamartiology. Our word this time around is atimos. Atimos. The word refers to that which is despised or less honorable. Despised or less honorable. In the four places where this is used in the New Testament, it is referring to inverted values, much, <coughs> much like what we saw with its cognate cousin last week. The first two uses are something Jesus says in both Matthew and Mark. Matthew thirteen fifty seven, And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. So, that, there's our word, without honor. A prophet is not without honor. Jesus is speaking of someone who should be honored, but because he grew up in that place, isn't honored. Same thing in Mark 6, 4. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. So this is referring to the very common 
human tendency not to believe that someone you remember as a little kid and someone maybe that you babysat could possibly grow up into a greatness far beyond your capacity. Familiarity does breed contempt. The Lord should have been honored by those who knew him best, but that is not the way it happened. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience. The Corinthians were students of Paul and his teaching, and yet at the same time, when it came to winning the world's applause, they had more of a knack for that. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Atimos. 1 Corinthians 4.10. The Apostle Paul says that you guys, our students, are honored and held up and esteemed by the world, but we are despised. We are held in contempt. The last instance is a reference to the human body, which I cite here just to provide the full range of the word's connotations, what we mean by atimos, what we mean by dishonor. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, there it is, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. So there we're doing what we ought to do. That which is held to be dishonorable, we show honor to. But there's a natural dishonor which attends to certain parts of the body, which Paul says is artificially and wrongly placed on apostles of Christ, or uh, the honor that is due to the pro- a prophet like Jesus is wrongly withheld from him. The book I'm reviewing uh, this go-round for episode 143 is a book by Francis Schaeffer. He is there, and he is not silent. So I read a bunch of uh, Francis Schaeffer's stuff when I was in the Navy. And also, uh, shortly after that, uh, Francis Schaeffer sort of made a huge splash in the evangelical world um, because that evangelical world had largely left the public square alone. Uh, The evangelical world, evangelicals as evangelicals, um, would not go to symphony orchestras, would not go to art museums, would not go to view an art film, uh, would not go to uh, testify before Congress, and so on. And what Francis Schaeffer did, and, and a lot of this was the result of a, uh, uh, a retreatist eschatology, where uh, evangelicals had been badly beaten in the battle for the mainline denominations, and they were sort of routed and um, and they had also adopted a premillennial dispensational eschatology, which taught them to expect that the world is going to continue to fall apart. And so they were often their fundamentalist enclaves, building their Bible colleges and their Christian radio stations and sort of their separate and distinct Christian subculture. And they were okay with doing that because there was a great deal of Christian capital still left in the broader culture. This was still America. It was still a recognizable America. And that lasted for a couple, three decades. And the Second World War got everybody, you know, occupied everybody's attention for a while. And then in 1973, uh, we had the infamous Roe v. Wade decision, where the conclusion of the hidden premises of progressivism suddenly exploded on the scene. And initially, evangelicals didn't even know what to make of it. In other words, 
it was not a foregone conclusion that evangelicals would have been pro-life. The person who made them pro-life, I would say, I would argue almost single-handedly, the, the person who brought the evangelical movement into the pro-life corner was Francis Schaeffer. He had an apologetic method that basically said to non-believing kids, yeah, college, by kids, I mean college kids, searchers, hippies wandering over Europe with a backpack. He basically said to them, no question is off the table. You can, you can talk about anything. You can ask me anything. We need to find out how the Bible relates to this particular subject that you've just brought up. What does the Bible say about the Vietnam War? What does the Bible say about gun control? What does the Bible say about sleeping around? What does the Bible say about this uh, Bergman film? And so on. And Francis Schaeffer was a very charismatic figure, very engaging uh, figure, fascinating. And he, pr- he started providing uh, the evangelical movement with ammo to respond to some of the um, manifest encroachments of the progressive secular agenda. In other words, uh, we'd been pregnant for a long time, but in the 70s, well, in the late 60s with the explosion of the sexual revolution, and then in the 70s, um, we started to show, okay, we're we're pregnant, and whose baby is this? What's going to come from this? And and Schaefer, uh, in his uh, film series, uh, How Should We Then Live?, um, and then whatever happened to the human race, uh, he was just a champion in expressing the issue, the basic issues at hand, in a very clear, cogent, come to Jesus way. So I, I, I had uh, had a lot to do with Schaefer back in the seventies, and he was responsible for setting me on a lot of the, well, a lot of the things I'm involved in now. Are, is the direct result of having been influenced by him at that time. And recently, I've circled back around and decided I'm gonna, um, I'd like to go back and visit some old friends. And so I recently went through his uh, little monograph, Art, Art and the Bible. Um, I, um, and I just finished again. He is there and he is not silent. I think it would be, I, I, basically, this is one of those things where uh, last week I talked about Machen speaking prophetically at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, here is Schaefer speaking prophetically at the end of the 20th century. And what it boils down to is we, we've seen so many uh, churches, denominations, publishing houses, magazines go soft or go liberal or go progressive or go secular. We've seen it happen so many times you would think that we knew what it looked like by now, but we appear not to. And, and I think it'd be very good for, I think it'd be very, very good for apologists and evangelists and for pastors to, um, to go back and revisit some of these classics. He is there and he's not silent. God exists. He is the living God and he has communicated his will and his purpose and his gospel to man. And this is something we can know. The thing, the, the bracing thing about Schaefer that's so good, same thing of value that we get from C.S. Lewis, is there is not a trace of relativism. Not a trace of relativism with Lewis, not a trace of relativism with Schaefer. And that's the thing we need. 
uh, we, uh, the evangelical church today is uh, shot through with the corruptions of relativism. So he's there and he's not silent. 